Olive Branch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Mike Schaefer Omerman, the Director of Research for Israel-Palestine at Don Mina. He's also a former editor-in-chief at 972 magazine. Uh, Mike, thank you for, for agreeing to be interviewed for us and taking time out of your evening, right? It is evening, um, yeah. <laughs> to talk to us. I am fascinated by your work. I've read multiple of your articles, and now I know that, that you started a new job, a recent job working for Don Mena. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about kind of what you're doing right now. Why did you transition from working for 972 Magazine to uh, the organization you were working with now? And kind of how did you get to 972 Magazine in the first place? Well, um, I'll start from the beginning, which is that I was working, you know, the beginning of my, my journalism career was actually at the Jerusalem Post. Um, I worked there for almost three years as an editor on the news desk. And that was very educational, but I kind of, I found it very hard to reckon, to reconcile my values and my worldview with what was being published in that paper. And I, got an offer to, to come work at 972 from a mutual friend. I was at a, a birthday dinner in Taipei in the West Bank. And my friend and one of the founders of 972, Ami Kaufman, sort of uh, after we were talking for a while said, you looking for a job? And I said, yeah, sure. And, uh, and that happened. But, you know, so 972 for me was when I started, you know, it became many things over the seven years that I was the editor there. But when I started, it was it was a place where I found my political home, where I was able to develop my political identity. For anybody who doesn't know, 972 is a, a journalism project, uh, a website and magazine founded by a group of Israeli and mostly Israeli, but Israeli and Palestinian journalists, uh, one of whom you've had on the guest on the on the show before, Aziz Abusara that was started by them because particularly after, after Operation Cast led the, the Gaza war in 2008, 2009, this group of journalists who were all sort of left-leaning in, in nature felt that they just didn't have a place to, to write the things that they felt needed to be said, um, either in, their, in the mainstream outlets they were working for or in their private blogs that they just weren't reaching the kind of number of people that they felt needed to hear this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it still is a community, but, but it was, it was a, a home. It was a place where I, where I developed my, my political awareness, as I said, um, where I got to know, you know, it, being a journalist is, uh, is the coolest job in the world because you get to just call up whenever you have a question, you get to call up interesting people. And for some reason, they take your call and answer their, and answer your questions. So I got to do that. I got to, you know, witness and, and be a part of, um, you know, not as a, not as a protagonist, but as an observer, um, some amazing activism going on um, in Israel, Palestine, 
you know, back then it was all called anti-occupation work for the most part. Uh, there was also a lot of work surrounding asylum seekers and refugees uh, in Israel at the time. And it just, you know, it was a place that, that not only did it reflect my values, but I got to have it reflect, well, you know, it, it, that happened, that, that went in both directions, um, both as a writer, as an editor. We can talk more about that if you have more questions at some point, but I, I left there after seven years and I think it was 2019. And it, it happened, you know, I had been thinking about sort of what was next in my career for a while. I'd been there for, for a long time, but um, particularly after the, the, the great return march in Gaza um, that year, I kind of, you know, just was burned out. Um, both from the work and from being so directly engaged with uh, just the ugliest, most horrible, tragic uh, things that that go on here. And I needed a break from it. So I actually um, went to go work for a medical cannabis company for two years. <laughs> I, you know, I decided I was I was hoping to be unemployed, but I got a job offer. Uh, too quickly that I couldn't turn down. So I did that for, for two years. It was really fun. I learned a lot about a completely different topic and got to, you know, not um, directly, I, I got to separate my work life and my professional life. You know, I still um, had all of my political thoughts and even continued to do some activism, but it was not my job anymore. And I think that's, that's a healthy thing in general but uh, but it's definitely what I needed at the time. And then uh, this past May, I, you know, it was impossible to look away. It was impossible to not feel like the world was kind of crumbling around me. And, you know, a lot of people in my, in my circles here in Jaffa in particular, but, you know, anybody around here, I think, between the river and the sea, it was a pretty intense couple of weeks to say the least. Um, and I, I decided that I needed to, to be putting, to go back to a place where I was putting my, my full energy um, toward, you know, making the world and this part of the world a slightly better place, a more just place. One that, you know, is better for my family and, you know, for, for everyone around me. Um, and particularly those who, who don't have the same privilege that I walk around with. And so after a few months working with the Norwegian Refugee Council and their Palestine office doing uh, communications and, you know, they're doing more humanitarian work, I got an offer to, to go work at Dawn, which is one of it's the most exciting thing that I've had an opportunity to be a part of certainly since 972. Yeah. That's a fascinating story. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. I do want to hear more about Dawn. Like kind of, I know you just started, but what does it, who founded it? What does it do? Like, what are they attempting to do as an organization? What is your role? Yeah. So the organization was founded by Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, who was the, many of you will probably remember, the Saudi journalist who was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in, I believe, 2018. For, you know, he was a dissident um, in exile, and he was 
you know, murdered for his for his work um, promoting democracy and and human rights um, and reform in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I believe it was a year or two later, um, some of his friends basically revi revived the organization and hired a incredible staff. Um, they focus on, Don stands for democracy in the Arab world now, democracy for the Arab world now. And they focus on the countries in the, in the Arab world, in the Middle East, that have close ties to the to United States and therefore um, working to reform and change US foreign policy as it relates to those states and those regimes, particularly ones that are, are not democratic in nature or are uh, tyrannical in some way or deny human rights and civil rights and don't respect you know, the democratic rights of their people. And they hired myself and another gentleman named Adam Shapiro to um, to run the to start the Israel-Palestine program um, just a few weeks ago, and that's what we're going to be doing is is you know going directly for to find ways that haven't been tried thus far to affect U.S. foreign policy, be it through arms sales, be it through shaming lobbyists. You know, these are these are things that they do in the other countries. So I'll tell you what they do in the other places, and then. Mm -hmm. um, it's most likely what we'll be doing on the Israel-Palestine side. They name and shame lobbyists who are working on behalf of these regimes. They highlight cases of unjust prosecutions. They name and shame culprits of human rights abuses, you know, be they prosecutors and judges or interrogators and police officials, interior ministry officials who are, you know, uh, revoking citizenships or, or, you know, other really, um, abusive behaviors of a that a state can can take and and lobby lobby congress and the administration and the foreign policy community to change their approach to, to these countries and that's what we we hope to do in israel palestine as well fascinating so again there's a lot to unpack <laughs> in all of these statements um i think okay i think i want to go I want to focus on this issue on Don and your work with Don a little bit and then move on to some of the personal stuff that you mentioned earlier in your introduction so with Don I noticed you know with 972 the the the, the magazine kind of prides itself by being kind of you know how like a, a coexistence or a collaboration that is equal, right, between Palestinians and um, Jewish activists. And I'm saying Palestinians in general, because Palestinian Israelis, Jewish Israelis, I don't want to, you know, kind of the labels. So I noticed at dawn with the Palestinian program that it's you and another person, as you mentioned, um, you, I didn't see a representation of Palestinians, even though it, you know, the title is Director of Research for Israel-Palestine. And I was wondering if that's something you guys are working on or dealing with or kind of trying to address? Yeah, so, um, I mean, first off, I didn't hire myself, so. I know. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, we're not, you know, there, there are certainly Palestinians um, in leadership roles in the position. The executive director is a Armenian-Palestinian uh, whose family's from Jerusalem. The head of the advocacy department is a Palestinian, uh, Ryan Gerard. And there's at least one other Palestinian in the, working in the organization. I think, 
you'll see the reason that they chose us um, in particular is because the type of work that we're doing is actually focusing on Israel um, mm -hmm. as, as the perpetrator, as the culprit, as the, as the state that needs to be reformed, as the state that has the relationship with the United States that, that we're trying to target. And, you know, my, I can speak for myself as, you know, an expert in, in how Israel administers the occupation. And, you know, we can talk about uh, whether apartheid is the right word or not. You know, we're, we're speaking uh, a week after Amnesty came out with the report. But, you know, it's, it's that, that expertise and familiarity and experience mm -hmm. um, in addition to, to the sort of proximity and, and relationships that, I, that I've built with Palestinian and Israeli actors and activists on the ground over the past 15 years that I've been living here that, uh, that I think makes me qualified to, to do that work. But yeah, I, you know, I agree. It would be um, ideal to, to, at the very least, have, uh, have more balance there. But you know, we're a, a very new organization, a very small organization and i'm growing and i hope those things get become more balanced as we as we grow mm -hmm. and you know from the activists that i've talked to so far we always talk about allies right and mm -hmm. i think it is very valuable for people in dc uh, when they see a jewish activist or a jewish israeli activist come and talk to them about the issues in Israel, especially with the equation of, you know, critiques of Israel with anti-Semitism and like terms like apartheid, anti-Semitism, Israel, you know, all these things get conflated in the US. Um, and I think there, it, it is important to have Jewish allies kind of talk to Congress or talk to Congress members or politicians or lobbyists or whatever about these issues because then it makes it harder to label activists in a certain way, right? Even though- Which isn't to say that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I know I hear like uh, some of the actors talked about being labeled as a self-hating Jew, as, you know, someone who's not, you know, not paying attention to the needs of his or her own people. I mean, it's similar in a lot of places, but it is kind of important, the work that you do in DC and the audience that you're doing, but also it would be important to have the Palestinian voices also brought there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can tell you that when Adam, my uh, co-director of the of the Israel Palestine program, goes to the hill, he's going there with Ride. You know, it's a Palestinian and a Jew going. It's not a. It's not just one person. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's the organization, and you know, I think also the other refreshing part for me, um, and I'm speaking for myself here now, is to be working on this issue in an organization that is not aligned or affiliated with a particular nationality or ideology. It's not a Zionist organization. It's not a Jewish organization. It's not a Palestinian organization. It's a, it's not an Israeli organization. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a human rights and democracy organization that, that I think allows us to, I hope, um, focus more on the issues and, and get bogged down a little bit less in the in the things that I think make it really hard to well let me let me phrase that a different way it's a lot of the organizations and movements that are working on on Israel Palestine they have a sort of ideological end game in mind and everything that they do 
or not ideological, political or ideological uh, end game. And so everything they do is reverse engineered to, to get there. And what we're doing is, is we're focusing on the, the substance of you know, what reality needs to look like for people, what rights people need to have, what, uh, what type of regime you know, can respect their rights and, and how to, to change the US perspective so that those are the priority and not the political end goal. You know, it's when, particularly in the US uh, and particularly with its strong alignment with mm -hmm. an Israeli vision or a Zionist vision for, for what things need to look like. And for you know, most of recent history that has focused on achieving a two-state solution, whether or not that was ever a genuine effort or not, is a different story. But, but that sort of presupposes a lot of the outcomes. And, and to, to be able to, to free yourself of that framework, to me, is at least so far in the past two weeks of working there, is, is quite liberating. And, and I hope that it'll allow us to have a little bit more success where others have been constrained in their approaches. Mm -hmm. So I also, I think you mentioned um, initially uh, you know, how you worked for Jerusalem Post, which is, it's very different than 972 Magazine. <laughs> Quite, yeah. <laughs> and you said that, you know, it doesn't align with your values. So my question is related to your values. How did you kind of come to these values where, you know, 970, 972 represented them better than uh, Jerusalem Post? Uh, how did you develop your political awareness and kind of um, your understanding of what's happening on the ground in Israel and Palestine? Well, let's, I think we have to go back a few decades to, to properly tell that. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. My father was born in England, uh, moved to Israel in the 1950s, and had a family here and then here in, in Israel, um, and then moved to the United States when he met my mom, uh, who is Dutch and a child Holocaust survivor, but grew up in New York. And they married and moved to, to California when, when they got married. And that's, that's where I came into the picture. I don't know, the progressive liberal values were always there. My mom was an activist in the Vietnam War, War era. She was a Peace Corps volunteer for three or four years in Turkey in the in the sixties. Um, I had you know uh, an uncle who was a pretty big civil rights lawyer, a cousin who was a special rapporteur for the UN on indigenous rights. So you know I had these values uh, that I grew up with. I was always politically aware and engaged. At the age of twelve or thirteen, I volunteered on the Clinton campaign. I was national intern of the week in 1996 um, on that campaign. After that, I was volunteering at a AIDS awareness organization. It, like, it, it's who I was in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, when I started college in the States, I studied political science. I thought I was going to be a civil rights lawyer or something like that or work in politics. And, you know, that got derailed for, for various personal reasons. And I ended up in Israel at the age of 19 or 20 for the first time, because I had met an Israeli girl in Los Angeles and followed her. That didn't work out, but I you know, then came 
to study on a kibbutz, uh, to study Hebrew for six months. Uh, a year later, met another Israeli girl in Sinai, actually. She came back to, to California with me for a year, and then we moved back to Israel with, together. And I made that happen by applying to, to finish my college to transfer, um, which I did at the IDC in Herzliya, another um, strongly Zionist institution. I didn't, you know, I, I grew up with my awareness of Israel growing up before I arrived here. I knew I was pro-peace. I knew that, you know, something was not quite right with the way things were going. I have to say that was about it. And when I got here, I, you know, sort of, I wasn't highly politically engaged with this place for the first year or two. And then I don't want to call it random uh, because I was studying political science. I was studying Middle Eastern uh, history and politics and conflict resolution at the time. So I was engaged intellectually with these issues, but there's a big difference between knowing something intellectually and you know, having a, a passion or, or strong feelings about it. And that happened, this is, this is a, <laughs> I had a friend who was visiting from the States. This is my second year uh, in college here. And uh, we were out drinking in Tel Aviv one night and ran into a friend of ours from Santa Cruz, which is where I had been living before at the, the Minzar, which is, uh, sort of mythological bar in, in the middle of Tel Aviv. And we had no idea he was in Israel. He was visiting his cousins, these two young women who lived in Neve Shalom. And we hung out with them for a little bit. And they said, we're going on this tour of, of Silwan in East Jerusalem tomorrow, an a political archaeological tour. Do you guys want to come? And me and my friend were like, okay. And we literally just stayed out drinking all night and met them at the Tel Aviv bus station the next morning at five or six in the morning, took the bus to Jerusalem and went on this walking tour of, of Silwan, which for you know anybody who's not familiar is a Palestinian neighborhood, I guess just south of the old city um, where there is some really intense ideological settlement going on. Uh, and has been for, for quite some time now. You know, this was 2008. And that's been done through archaeology. And so this tour was, you know, by a, an archaeologist, an activist named Yoni Mizrahi. And, the, it, you know, explained to us how archaeology was being used to displace the Palestinian families that were there and how, you know, the, the archaeologists, you know, I, I later learned that most archaeology is like this, that you know, by deciding to stop at a certain layer in your dig, you're you're choosing what to highlight, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so they were, you know, completely disregarding two thousand years of history to get to the part that they wanted to show, and in the process, uh, ignoring lots of other things, not to mention the people that were actually living there now and had been for hundreds of years, and and making their lives hell uh, if they were even allowed to stay, and. And that, that morning, uh, maybe I was, you know, underslept and, and emotionally vulnerable, but, but it really, uh, something clicked for me. Hearing, hearing these Palestinian families tell their stories of what it meant for them, something that looked completely 
banal to, to anybody walking by that there was an archaeological park outside the old city of Jerusalem, which, you know, if you don't know the political context, makes a lot of sense even. Um, but to, it, it just opens, it opened my eyes to something. I don't know if it was, it was hearing the, the personal impact um, in the first person or, or what, but it, it, it changed me. And slowly I just started either seeking out or, or accepting opportunities to learn more, to be more active. I had a friend who had begun to volunteer with or to go out with a, an activist group called Tayush, which is a, a group of people who, who go out and effectively escort Palestinian herders in the South Hebron Hills who are attacked by, by Israeli settlers on a daily basis and effectively essentially camped, you know, tend to their lands or their, or their flocks without the protection of Israelis walking with them. And even that isn't protection most of the time. And I saw my best friend being arrested, you know, that first time I went out. It, it, uh, it happened pretty quickly. And then I think the, the, the moment that that turned into me writing and becoming more of an advocate in that area was the, well, I graduated college and then started doing an internship with UNHCR, UN Refugee Agency in Tel Aviv. Again, thought I was going to go to law school, but decided that $100,000 of debt, if I wasn't actually going to be a lawyer, probably wasn't the smartest idea for me. And I was sort of didn't know what I was going to do again. was working at a cafe as a waiter. And the, the Mavi Marmara incident happened. Forgive me of my timeline. I don't remember exactly what year that was. But that was when there was a, a convoy or of boats trying to break the siege on Gaza. And the, the Israeli army commandos, you know, landed on, on one of the ships. And I think, well, a number of, of the activists on the ship were killed. And I remember going to a, a protest in the middle of Tel Aviv, like the next day, some right-wingers threw like flashbang grenades into the crowd. And I ended up writing a, a really like emotionally heavy email chain with a friend of mine trying to explain to him what it felt like for me to be in Israel right, right at that moment, what the political moment was, what it felt like, what, where the politics were, why I felt that even like progressive views of, of Israel, you know, this is the end or the beginning of the end of, of the Oslo era when, when people still just accepted that the two-state solution was an inevitability. And that, email chain ended up getting passed, you know, forwarded along and somebody forwarded it to J Street and they ended up publishing it on their website. And I started a blog and then I saw a job posting at the Jerusalem Post and got the job. And, you know, I learned a lot there as I, as I mentioned before about how politics works, how information works, how the, you know, how, how the story gets told. And, and what effect that can have, um, especially being in a place that was telling things very differently than I would have if I had had the choice. It, you know, it became something that I became very passionate about. Apparently, I, I was good at it because I, you know, was promoted a couple times and then got the offer to go work at 972. But, but yeah, you know, that, that's what happened. <laughs>
That's a fascinating story. I didn't even like address working for like medical marijuana company. <laughs> we'll talk about that too. I think it's a fascinating journey and you know it it's also familiar you know with that interaction actually seeing things for yourself um but also having a family that you know has a history of activism kind of helps so you moved to Israel right um you started developing these views and you decided to use that as a way to be active you know as a journalist and your capacity as journalist participating in protests etc and i know you know this comes at a cost right because you you know you're not shy using terminology that is considered well i mean it this truly describes the situation but it's controversial for some people in israel where you currently live right So what kind of challenges, you know, have you faced because of that, you know, like using terms like colonialism, occupation, you know, things that for me or for a lot of people seem like things that describe the facts on the ground, but for people, for a lot of people in Israel, not everyone, but for a lot of Jewish Israelis, that's kind of... They, they look at you like you're crazy or they're you know like you shock them when you use these terms so what kind of challenges did you face or are you facing since you're still there and doing the work you know i think overall i've had it pretty easy um and part of that comes from my ability to, to sort of i don't know if code switching is the right is the right word mm-hmm. but to assume different identities in different situations I'm American, I'm Israeli, I speak English with an American accent. My accent in Hebrew is doesn't seem foreign to most people. Being a journalist allowed me to sort of float through a lot of different circles. I've spent more time in Palestinian cities and in the West Bank than I think most Jewish Israelis certainly think they ever could and probably more than they actually could uh, comfortably at least. And and so, you know, I, I was able to, I have been able to um, to adjust how I speak to, to really to code switch. Um, you know, there were there were times when I would get into screaming matches with taxi drivers, but that was too exhausting, so I just stopped all that. And and to be honest, it's it it became taxing enough that with most interactions with with Jewish Israelis, I, I developed mechanisms for feeling out what I could say. Mm-hmm. I would probably almost never volunteer of my own volition what I did for a living or uh, or my views or where I stand on things. And if people asked, I would, you know, I had this sort of stepped set of answers. I'm a journalist. What do you focus on? Mm-hmm. Politics. Or what kind of politics? Uh, you know, the uglier things that, that go on here. And And based on their answers, I would know whether to continue or not. And you know, most of the time, if they weren't interested, the way that I phrase those answers, they wouldn't continue to ask also, because I think a lot of people are exhausted from talking about this stuff, uh, which is a problem also. You know, I think it's reflective of, of how accepting of the situation. And I think most, most Jewish Israelis understand that things aren't great. It's just that they're better for them than for most Palestinians. And so they accept it. And, and they're tired of arguing, they're tar- tired of defending it. Uh, and so when when given, I, I would give people permission to not talk about it, to be honest. 
And the other thing is that I, all of my journalism has been in English. It's been pretty much outward facing. So, um, you know, 972 helped, co helped found uh, a Hebrew language website that's uh, that acts, it, you know, covers a lot. Yeah, local call um, together with Just Vision. And the journalists there, my colleagues, the editors, the writers, they, they have a much harder time. They, they get recognized, they get attacked verbally and at times physically. Um, I, I've been spared that. You know, part of it is because I, I write in English. And when I get interviewed on TV, it's for international stations and not on you know, London and Kirshenbaum, the, the sort of mythological uh, 6 p.m. Uh, news talk show. And and yeah, I I would kind of pick and choose where I would talk about the stuff. And, and that, that's helped me. Um, and and I found communities that, that felt safe for me. Living here in Jaffa, I, I have, you know, community um, among my activists and journalist friends. I have community of people who even if they don't feel the exact same way, they they accept the same set of facts, which makes it a lot easier to talk about, to see the world in a similar similar way. They at least understand the problems in the same ways. But it's not simple, and it's it's meant never fully integrating myself into Israeli society, which which has its own costs. It's not the same as as you know constantly being in in conflict with everybody around you. But, but it means uh, being on the margins of society in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that, you, you know, especially during direct kind of tense events, I mean, you know, violence constantly happens, visible, invisible, but some periods, you know, we, we experience it in higher level, more intense levels, like when there is direct um, war when there are attacks that are physical and like more prevalent and obvious like what happened in may and you know sometimes it is emotionally taxing where you have to go work for a medical marijuana company for a <laughs> <bit>. <laughs> so how, how can i you know i feel like it is it, even for me and it's funny because a lot of people assume that when you leave maybe if you leave that's a way out and I left 10 years ago, I feel like you can leave home, but home doesn't leave you, right? And yeah. the issues still like keep me awake at night. And I feel like even here in the States, I have to deal with these things as a professor who teaches about the Middle East, about Islam, about things at a Catholic college. Sometimes I do have, like, I feel like when I teach about Israel-Palestine, I get really exhausted. Like I have to sleep for a long time. <laughs> Uh, because it's emotionally tasking and also like students will ask me questions you know about like is Israel an apartheid you're a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship does that really like what does that mean and you know some of it is with good intention because they don't know um they hear about anti-semitism that you know and which is also prevalent apparently more prevalent in the U.S. now or more visible let's say uh in the U.S. than before 2016 <laughs> so it, it becomes really exhausting even when you're abroad even if you don't live there and sometimes yeah. you wish you're there because you feel like you're cheating <laughs> uh, because you're out 
it, it is I feel like for me I do I understand code switching sometimes when you're at a dinner party or when you're uh, just trying to go grocery shopping or be in a you know in a taxi um, and feel safe but you know also code switching sometimes you get to the point where you're like okay there's there is a red line sometimes silence is complacency right and I have to say yeah. something and I guess you have to pick and choose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but not always. Sometimes it chooses the situation chooses for you. But mm -hmm. but yeah. So I I do want to maybe maybe let's play this game. I don't know if you've addressed this, but how would you talk about the Amnesty International recent um, what's the word for it um, the report or uh, an re recent declaration? I don't know what the right word for it. Um, and even though it's not like new, because Betzalem before, it was Betzalem, right? That used the term mm -hmm. apartheid, uh, used it as an Israeli organization. But how would you talk about this, for instance, to an American politician? You know, I've been doing that for a long time. Um, and I would also just say that Amnesty followed Human Rights Watch, who followed uh, Betzalem and another Israeli organization, Yeshdin all of whom followed many Palestinian organizations who have been coming to the same conclusion on the same basis, you know, the same legal, factual, and and this, the same arguments for, for a long, long time. But, you know, I, the way that I've often tried to explain that situation to American politicians, to American uh, people and the public is that I, used to think of myself as like fairly middle of the road, progressive, like middle middle side of the left, not, not a radical, not an extremist. I believed in civil rights, I believed in equality. I believe in, you know, a country that exists to, you know, that, that sort of Lockean, uh, you know, social contract theory of, you know, that the country exists by virtue of, of the people granting it the, the powers that it has because it serves them. And those are completely radical ideas in Israel. One of the curses that gets thrown around the Israeli parliament in order to call somebody a traitor is to say, you want a country of all its citizens. And if you think about that, that says a lot about what type of regime, and, and we're just talking about within you know, Israel proper, 1948 Israel, not the not the occupied territories, mm -hmm. not, you know, the, the broader area and populations that this, this government and its apparatus control. The idea that that country where, you know, even, even leave out East Jerusalem, where, where people aren't citizens, where Palestinians aren't citizens, the idea that the country belongs to all of its citizens is beyond the political pale it's off the map it's literally like be it's it's beyond the the scope of of the acceptable political ideas and then you add to that that israel controls undemocratically under a military regime millions more people palestinians in the west bank and gaza to varying degrees east jerusalem where you know people have residency but not citizenship, so they can't vote in national elections. You add add that to the picture, and it's this is not. 
you know, I, it's this, uh, this quote gets attributed to, to lots of different people. So forgive me for not uh, knowing exactly who said it first, but you know, Israel is democratic for, a Jewish, for its Jewish citizens and Jewish for its Palestinian citizens, or subjects, let's say, uh, not just citizens, but also those um, living in, in the territories. So yeah, apartheid comes to mind. I, I always preferred to just say that this is not, first off, let's, let's establish that this is not a liberal regime. Then maybe that it's not even a democratic regime because so many millions of people live under a military dictatorship and even its own citizens, one, one fifth, are not looked at as, as sort of full citizens. You know, okay, like most most rights, not all, but most rights are relatively equal. But but the idea that it's their state, that it's your state, Anwar, mm -hmm. is is you know not accepted by not just a lot of the people, but the government. And and today, you know, the closest thing that it has to a constitution, we have uh, you know this this nation state basic law, mm -hmm. which is actually the Jewish nation state basic law, which says that Israel belongs to the Jewish people. And, and nowhere in the Israeli quasi-constitution is equality guaranteed anywhere. So, so yeah, I, I don't think that, that it's that strange that a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that the best way to describe this regime is apartheid. And I think it makes it a lot easier that, that things have changed over the past 10, 15, 20 years from a place where, as I mentioned before, it felt like two-state solution was kind of inevitable, that it was the only place that things were headed to a situation where I don't think, I would say anybody, but you know, never say never. I'm sure there's some people who still believe this somewhere. I don't, I don't think there are very many people at all who still believe that the Israeli government has any intention of giving up control of the Palestinian territories, of granting equal rights or voting rights to, to the subjects, to the subjects of its military regime, of guaranteeing equality to, to its citizens, to all of its citizens. And they're open about that now. This is, this is what it is. Like this is what the state looks like. It's not a temporary situation. It's not a transitory situation. It's just, is it, this is what it is. And unless, something changes, then you have to start describing reality for how it exists today and how it's existed for the last, you know, 55 or, you know, 70 something years, depending on what view you want to take, instead of what you hope it will be, and what you maybe thought where you thought it was going. And that's why I think we're seeing so many people change the framework that they are describing Israel and Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it. And, and the regime, the, the governing structure and, and the rights it gives to its people and the way that it treats the people under its control. Yeah, that, that's a great way to explain it. So what, how do you view, well, talking about all of this, how do you kind of in an ideal world, what do you think is the, is the equitable justice, just solution to what's happening on the ground? to Israeli occupation of the Palestinians? The most, in the most basic terms, 
-hmm. any solution that gives people, that gives everyone equality, full equality, civil rights, some sort of self-determination, and at the very least, an equitable resolution to the Palestinian refugee problem in whatever political framework or shape that takes. How we get there is a whole different story. And what it looks like in the end, I have, I have no answers to. You know, I, I, I find it hard to imagine a, a political a manifestation of all of those um, things, of those core values that isn't one democratic state, but I don't think anybody's, well, definitely some, a lot of people who want that, but I, I, don't, I don't think that that would be easy to accomplish. You know, there are so many, the fear of the other, the, the vitriol, the, the pain, the, the history of a conflict, the very limited space and resources, that there's so much that needs to be overcome in order for, for that to, to feel like it could, it could really be a successful resolution. That, you know, I, I'm more despondent about that question today than I ever have been. And, and to make it worse, the world has effectively given up on trying to affect change. All the, all the countries and the politicians and the people who once were, you know, supporting a peace process, which was their, their way of pushing for, for a more just solution here. They've just accepted that, that maintaining the status quo and preventing Israel from, you know, building more settlements or demolishing more homes, which they're not successful at in either of those things either, that, that that's enough. That that's, that's all they can think of doing. Um, it's all they can, they can muster the political will or capital to do. And, and I don't think that, you know, in conflict resolution, there's this idea of ripeness that both sides have to be, or particularly the more powerful side has to be, the situation has to be ripe for them to take the risks and sacrifices necessary to, to reach a just resolution. And Israel is nowhere near there. Things are pretty good for, for Israel and Israelis, certainly compared to the Palestinians, definitely compared to previous decades and, and eras of this, of this country's short existence. So yeah, I, I, I don't know how it changes. I hope, I hope it's as peaceful as possible, but, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a path forward. All I know is that I don't think that without ensuring full equality, democratic rights, resolution to the refugee issue, and, and some sort of expression of national self-determination for both sides who you know, have staked everything on those aspirations um, that, that there will be an end to the conflict. Yeah, my depressing <laughs> analysis. Is reality. Um, yeah. What do you think is the role of activists, peace activists, regardless of what they do, journalists, you know, in different capacities? What role do they play in pushing us, even though you it's a, you give us a depressing picture, but we all know how 
tough the situation is, I don't want to use bleak. What kind of role do you think uh, peace activists, regardless of their role or what form of activism they embrace, do they play or would they play in helping getting us maybe closer, a little bit closer to a resolution of some sort? An equitable re resolution, nothing that is going to, you know, undermine Palestinians, you know, pacify them over really provide them, providing them with justice. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it depends on, on who you are and where you are. You know, peace activists in Israel, peace activists in Palestine, and peace activists overseas, I think all can have very different roles. I'll start with overseas in that, like I said, with, you know, as far as the ripeness, Israel enjoys almost complete impunity in the world right now for, for its actions and for the, the lack of movement toward any sort of justice or resolution. And I think that has to change if, if Israel is ever going to be ready to, as I said, take the sacrifices and be willing to, you know, take the risks and sacrifices that, that are necessary to achieve those things. You know, that's what we're working on at Dawn in the States um, is to try and challenge the unquestioning support diplomatically and militarily that Israel gets, which makes it very comfortable and, you know, not see any need to, to sacrifice or, or take any risk or, or make any effort for that matter. Mm -hmm. I think that within Israel and Israeli activists, whenever I would get most despondent at 972, I had a colleague um, who became my boss at some point, Chagai Matar, who, who would say that, you know, it's our, it's our job to, to create the infrastructure so that when change does come one day, that we're not left in a void, that the, the foundations are there for a more just society, for, for better relations, for, for greater understanding. You know, it seems pretty futile to be a peace activist, uh, anti-occupation activist, anti-apartheid activist, whatever you want to call it in Israel today, because nobody's listening. It's quite hostile. The government is hostile. The people are hostile. But you kind of have to just keep pushing because, you know, I don't know if it, if it stops us from going off the, off the end or just because you never know where the tipping point is. You know, the, I, I told you all the reasons that I'm depressed about the situation. The, one of the only things that gives me hope mm -hmm. is that, you know, these are perhaps cliched examples, but nobody saw the Berlin Wall falling before it happened. Nobody saw apartheid falling before it happened. You know, some of the most dramatic and biggest changes in the world and in geopolitics seemingly, for most of us, come out of nowhere. And we have to be prepared for when they do. So, so I think that's the role of, of Israeli and, um, and probably Palestinian activists as well, although I'm more hesitant to, to speak for them or, or tell them what to do. But also, you know, for Israeli activists, there's a huge role in, in showing the world that there are people, stakeholders, people with something to gain and to lose, who are demanding something better, who see humanity and Palestinians who see, I, I don't know if I want to say evil, but you know, just unadulterated wrongness and injustice in, in the way that their government and their nation has been treating the Palestinian people for, 
you know, close to a century now, but particularly all through the parts of that century where they've, where they've held power. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I was much more hopeful two years ago. Um, these days it, it seems like there's less of a clear path forward, but that doesn't mean that there's less of a, of a need to keep pushing. Because what other choice do we have? You know, it's either that or, or accept things as they are. And, you know, I can't do that. It's not, it's not in me. It's not who I am. Um, this brings me to one uh, final question I have. What kind of advice do you have for young activists? You kind of articulated some in your answer who are, you know, just starting their activism journey or their political journey but they're still afraid, right? Because of the challenges that we mentioned and you mentioned, what kind of advice do you give to them to help them <laughs> with the way ahead? Run. Um, no, I, I think uh, find a supportive community of people who are working toward the same thing because you know, power in numbers is a real thing, not only as far as affecting change, but those kind of communities hold you up when you're feeling your lowest, your most hopeless or despondent or like, you know, why am I doing this? But also to constantly be evaluating what you're doing and how you're doing it and whether it is effective or whether you're just doing it to make yourself feel better. You know, one of the unfortunate side effects of the the peace process that you know dragged on for I don't know how many years is that kind of you know some people call it an industry I don't think I would go that far but there's there's a lot of initiatives and groups and, and movements that that came into existence not because there was real thought about like will this make a difference but rather that somebody you know they they, they kind of they're I don't want to call it self-serving because that's it's a little too condescending, but I, I think there's there's a constant need to reevaluate what you're doing and make sure that it's in line with, you know, with, that you're being a good ally, especially if, if we're talking about Jews and Israelis. And that is not just, you know, being supportive where support is needed, but listening to to what the people who you're, you know, who you're fighting for their for their rights, for their freedom, for their equality, that it's that it's what they want from you. That it's where they feel you can be most effective and and that you're you know following their lead and, and the apartheid example is a great is a great example there you know activist twitter is, is a whole beast of its own but you know if you lower the volume a little bit there's a lot of truth there and and one of the things that you'll hear a lot is palestinians have been saying all these things for decades why weren't you listening and and i think that especially today we can really pay attention to that and and look at other areas where maybe we're not seeing those kind of blind spots where you know we're still thinking about our own self-interest as a, a force that shapes the type of activist that activism that we're doing and and yeah you know it's uh, i think critical self-evaluation of yourself and your work and and what you're a part of is something that's that's really important and, and something that, you know, a constructive community can help you with. 
Yeah, no, thank you very much. That was detailed. Um, I just wanted to give you a minute to, to add anything that you want to add. If you know there's something burning that you want to say and I didn't ask you about, um, this would be the time for it. You know, I think I would I would just talk about for a second the it's kind of a continuation of what I was saying right now, that nobody can can ask you to sacrifice more than you're comfortable or willing to sacrifice. But but sometimes you need to be brutally honest with yourself about that. And, and that really comes to mind with um, the designation of the six Palestinian NGOs as terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a scary thing for those organizations, for any Israelis who are working with them. And it, it really takes solidarity and puts it to an extreme test, right? Because anybody who's who's thinking of, of challenging that, you know, could be facing years in prison. And just as an example, you know, it's, it's, it's a reminder that stakes can be very, very different for, for two different people doing the exact same thing in the exact same place. You know, in, in more simple terms, it would be Israeli and Palestinian activists at the same protest in the West Bank. And if they get arrested, they go into different legal systems and face different charges and different sentencing. And, you know, different treatment. Remembering that, not not in order to feel guilty, but just to you know, from a point of humility, from in order to ensure that you're, you're coming at this kind of work honestly, is really difficult but really important. Well, people like you and others who I've interviewed give me a little bit of hope, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and happy to say that I have those communities, that I have those, those people around me and that I know a lot of, you know, really dedicated people who are, who have dedicated their lives to, to working for a better future, both Israelis and Palestinians and, and uh, internationals, as we call them here. But yeah, come on board if you're <laughs> listening. <laughs> Um, thank you very much for, you know, for again, talking to us. Uh, this was fascinating and sharing some stories that uh, are private, <laughs> but relevant. I want to, you know, again, thank you. And hopefully, you know, we'll get to meet in person at some point <laughs> in the U.S. or in the Holy Land. Um, and I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Thank you so much for reaching out and for giving me the space.